Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsor. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and the Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now sitting in for Neil this week, it's your host, Charles Marshall. Hello, everyone. Charles Marshall here, hosting for Neil today. And the day is July 30th, 2020, and I am live, as I typically am, from San Diego, California. And very pleased to uh, to bring on to the show, as I'm, I'm able to, uh, when he's available, uh, Bill Padilla. Welcome, Bill. Hi, Charles. Good to be here. And this show is really going to be a bit of a blockbuster. Uh, Bill, Bill is going to have some really great insight to provide and kind of a recent, we don't know that it's a, a case win yet. However, it's lined up in a very favorable direction and uh, he will provide the level of, of detail that he thinks is appropriate at this time. Uh, but it is very uh, positive for borrowers what he has to report. It shows how a really detailed and penetrating uh, litigation approach from our side can penetrate what often is a paper tiger on the other side. And it also, I will be talking uh, briefly toward the end of uh, our half-hour time together, I will be talking briefly about some of the latest COVID developments. We won't necessarily address COVID aspects at we show. It's just so out there, though, as a critical part, as a fundamental part of all our lives, including foreclosure and the legal arena. So there's COVID all around us, and I don't mean the virus. Uh, so when, one interesting aspect to this is uh, WebEx. Uh, now, in the recent appeal that I had back in May that I ended up winning, that was the Masood appeal, uh, WebEx was, was the form. It was, it was audio only. There was no video, though there is a pretty rapid transition around the country to using video WebEx as well. And it's a fairly interactive, fairly intuitive group video conferencing tool. And Bill, of course, will give you some more details of, of how that, just how that works. And there really was a full-blown trial conducted through this WebEx here in Missouri. Now, I will say about Missouri, it's a state that I, I think it's safe to say uh, just because there just aren't a lot of 
foreclosure cases, you know, in the grand scheme of things, in Missouri, comparatively speaking, of course, there are a lot, particularly for those on the ground there. Uh, but when you look at a lot of the states that show up on this show uh, time and time again, Illinois, Florida, Texas, California, even Oregon and Washington, because of the non-judicial foreclosure aspect in those states, uh, we do see a lot of different states. However, we really haven't heard from Missouri much, but this is an important development in Missouri, and we're glad to cover it. I'm glad to have Bill on to cover it in some detail. And I will provide just a little bit of a backdrop, the whole non-judicial versus judicial foreclosure aspect. Um, the, the five consolidated cases, and Bill's going to go into details on this, of course. These cases were consolidated into one trial, and it's a judicial foreclosure framework. So the trial was as of right on the part of the borrower defendant to force the other side to prove out their case. And so it did go to trial in a judicial foreclosure arena. And that's indicative of the mortgage aspect to the underlying notes in terms of how it's structured. Uh, a lot of borrowers will remember, though it's not inevitable, it's typical that where you have deed of trust, then uh, non-judicial foreclosure is often it. The vehicle for that, but that's not invariable. That doesn't happen all the time. And Missouri is typically a non-judicial foreclosure state, meaning most foreclosures there are handled non-judicially, just as they would be overwhelmingly in California and throughout much of the uh, West. On the other hand, there are a minority of judicial foreclosures in Missouri, which is to say it's not rare the use of judicial foreclosure in Missouri. I wouldn't call it common, but it's not rare. So with that intro, uh, I'm happy to have Bill uh, step in and tell us uh, what he knows about all this. No, I'd be happy to. Thanks, Charles. Um, well, first of all, uh, I just want to let the listeners know that uh, no you know, decision, as you mentioned, has been rendered yet in the case as closing arguments were uh, to be in written format within 30 days of the uh, final argument, or not the final arguments, but of uh, witness testimony last week. So uh, no decision has been rendered yet. Um, I saw the post by Neil here on Wednesday, uh, and it, I thought it just played perfectly into uh, this topic today because his post was dealing with challenging the uh, servicer witnesses, their authority, and the missing witness that typically is in all of these cases, the one that has no knowledge of the uh, plaintiff trusts in the matter. So um, this particular case uh, was the first time that uh, I was allowed, or I have, testified via WebEx video. So uh, I've done some testifying, obviously, uh, telephonically and whatnot over the years, but um, WebEx, uh, due to COVID, uh, was the preferred method this time, and it, it, to be all honest, it was a really effective way uh, to not only testify, 
but it allowed the witnesses on both sides, including myself and the servicer witnesses, everybody who was a party to the uh, action to uh, be present throughout the entire trial. So you can see on the WebEx screen the video uh, of everyone's faces. You can see who's logged in and who's listening. And uh, it's really effective because typically when I testify live, I'm, I'm sequestered by the courts. I have to sit out in the hallway at the courthouse until it's my time to testify. And uh, very seldom, if ever, do I get to listen to the uh, service or witnesses, which is, is a, it's kind of a ha- it kind of hamstrings um, my clients a lot of times because, you know, one of the key things I'm hired to do is to point out the deficiencies, the missing uh, documents, uh, poke holes in their story, their testimony, that sort of thing. And when I can't hear and see, I'm not allowed to see what those witnesses are saying, um, it, it's very difficult for me to really provide um, as much assistance as I, 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 I can provide by, you know, handwriting notes or sharing that with uh, counsel when they're asking questions. So what was really uh, neat about this technology is that during the trial, while the servicer witnesses were on the stand or, you know, testifying via video, um, my attorney was allowed to have a laptop computer right in front of him, and in live time, I could uh, send questions uh, in the subject line of an email, for example, and I could shoot that to him uh, right as he was doing uh, his cross-examination. And it was extremely useful. Uh, He was thrilled uh, with how that worked because it allowed us to really hit some buttons on the testimony, and it really, um, you know, my my impression was that a, a lot of the questionings and the line of questioning where we were attacking the authority of the parties, the authority as uh, uh, these witnesses to even be the servicer for the plaintiff, and I'll get into a little bit of the background of the case in a sec, um, but it really, uh, to be all honest, they were like a deer in the headlights. They didn't know what hit them, and they really ended up making what I believe were some pretty incriminating admissions. So um, so all in all with this WebEx technology, I think my take on that is um, if it can be used like it was here in these Missouri cases, I think it's going to be extremely helpful for most folks. But even in cases where uh, maybe a trial is imminent and uh, let's say I haven't even been retained or named in the case or whatever, um, if I can be allowed to assist um, opposing counsel as a consultant, so to speak, to sit in on the trial and do what I was doing in terms of suggestions or questions directly to counsel while they're in trial or uh, uh, questioning the witnesses, I, I think it's uh, potentially a, a very powerful um, uh, use of my uh, expertise, uh, even if I'm not testifying in a particular case. So. Um, in this particular Missouri situation, and again, you, as you mentioned, it's not a real hotbed. We don't have a whole lot of stuff coming out of Missouri, but um, this was a situation where uh, four out of the five loans, uh, Wells Fargo was involved pretty much in, in all five cases, uh, but four out of the five loans, they were originated by Wells Fargo back in 2006. 
all on the same date uh, with a number of different properties. And these alleged uh, notes and debts were sold all to the same plaintiff uh, in the matter, which was HSBC as a trustee on behalf of this uh, Nomura 2006 WF1 trust. Now, this case, uh, when I first got involved and I started looking at the filings, <clears throat> it was, in my view, probably one of the weakest cases I had ever seen in terms of a plaintiff's um, position and their claim in terms of evidence that they had in support of their claim. And what I, what I mean by that is we start off with all five cases having uh, the lost note affidavit. So plaintiff doesn't have any notes, and all they have is lost note affidavits. And in those lost note affidavits, there's nothing to specifically identify who was in possession of the original notes at the time or, you know, or at the time they were lost, when they were lost, no information regarding that, or who was even entitled to enforce it at the time it was lost. So it was pretty devoid of any kind of specific information um, regarding the custodial history, whatever happened to the note, uh, first and foremost. So that created a, a much greater burden for them to to show and come in and prove that they were that they paid value for the debt that the plaintiff uh, held these uh, loans so on and so forth now the other part to the case that uh, was very unusual is that it, it, in some ways is that there was absolutely zero production whatsoever by the plaintiff in terms of um, authoritative documents there was no production of a pooling and servicing agreement. There was uh, no ancillary agreements. I mean, there literally was uh, not one lick of uh, supporting evidence which subjected them to um, the, the line of questioning that we hit them on. And so, you know, following kind of Neil's playbook uh, where you attack these witnesses, um, I started out by, you know, telling counsel on our side, listen, we're, we're – where they clearly have a lot of holes here in the story, but I really want to hit, I really want to hammer home their authority to be here today, and what they did uh, to verify this complaint, so on and so forth. So, um, as we got into that, uh, some interesting admissions were eventually made. Uh, we had two witnesses there. Uh, we had one from SLS, which was uh, claiming to be the servicer on behalf of the plaintiff trust. And then we had Wells Fargo because they were the party who had executed the lost note affidavits. Now, the first witness with SLS, um, we kept asking, you say you're the servicer, what document, what authoritative document do you have uh, to give you that, that right uh, to service on behalf of the plaintiff? And uh, there was a bit of run around there, but ultimately the story was, well, I, I have a power of attorney. But again, no power of attorney was ever produced. The court never saw it. I was never, I never saw it. It was just simply a, a statement that I have power of attorney. As for the Wells Fargo witness, uh, he was a bit fluttered, and he finally, uh, when we hammered on that question, he finally just said, well, the PSA gives me that right. And and that was great for a number of reasons. Because first, um, 
most people can't challenge uh, the pooling and servicing agreements or can't even raise it necessarily as a defense unless the plaintiff uh, acknowledges it or brings it into the record somehow themselves. So it was great because he says the PSA, and that immediately allowed an attack on that document to, to, to ask, okay, where is the PSA? Why has one never been produced? Why is it that the only... Uh, PSA that closely resembles the plaintiff is an SEC filing that's unexecuted. There's no signatures or anybody or acknowledgments. Um, and, and this really got him on his heels, and he really ultimately had no response. And so it kind of led him down this path uh, by referencing the PSA to to talk about things like loan schedules and the and, and that and of which again none of this was presented none of it existed and what was really critical as I sent the question directly I said ask this witness what what is exactly is Wells Fargo's role I mean and name all the roles Wells Fargo has with this plaintiff and the trust and of course you know he was unprepared and he said we're just a, we were just a servicer and well if you look at the the filings with the SEC that PSA says that Wells Fargo had multiple roles. They were a master servicer, they were a trust administrator, and most importantly, they were named as the custodian of the documents. So that really set them up uh, for for some trouble because with those last note affidavits, uh, they never spoke. They said, we checked with the custodian and they had no record of uh, of these notes. And I, and so they kind of uh, failed to disclose that Wells Fargo was actually indeed supposed to be the custodian, and that led to the fact that the PSA says that Wells Fargo executed a certification that they, uh, with along with the trustee HSBC, that they had those loans and that they were transferred to the trust. So the story began to. Uh, unravel relatively quick on them and they were sort of a deer in the headlights and so what that next got us into was uh, well I I guess one of the key admissions from the Wells Fargo witness was uh, and I I thought it was pretty much the uh, order the code red moment is his testimony was Wells Fargo sold these loans to the plaintiff trust directly and when we brought up all of these issues, we finally hit them, and I said, ask him, ask him this question direct. I said, has he reviewed any evidence or seen any receipts evidencing a, a, that sale from Wells Fargo to the plaintiff trust? And his admission was, I've seen no evidence uh, that I reviewed or I have no receipts uh, showing the sale. Okay, so... Um, I have to say that was the first time I ever concurred with a servicer witness to the court. I said, well, Your Honor, I said, I have to concur with uh, Wells Fargo's witness here today that I, too, have not seen any evidence of a sale, no receipts, um, and I can find nothing in the record as to uh, the plaintiff, uh, the claim that they've ever purchased this this debt. So uh, that played in very nicely. Now, some other really critical admissions um, 
that were made is the Wells Fargo witness, when we talked and got into what did they do to review, uh, what kind of files and records, business records, did they review in preparation for the trial, um, a couple of interesting things were said. One, Wells Fargo says that they use the MSP system, and, and that's the most common system out there by the vast majority of servicers. But what was um, interesting is he went on to volunteer and say, MSP is really considered black knight. He says most people, uh, they, don't, they don't know that. They just call it MSP, but it's really black knight. Now, we've talked and Neil's talked and blogged quite a bit about black knight and, and how this is just basically a central repository of data. And these servicers are simply tapping into this uh, database and just reviewing the, the exact same uh, documents and records that the prior servicers had and whatever. It's just a central repository. So when you get into the old fictitious, as I call it, phantom boarding process that uh, these uh, witnesses get into, um, it's kind of ridiculous because they ultimately admit in this case that they didn't verify uh, that the plaintiff trust is real, that it even exists, or they didn't even verify how they had authority to uh, even be in in the matter testifying, which was critical. Um, but also, they admitted, and I and I because I knew this from all the cases that I worked, and I told our counsel, I said, I guarantee that that when you hit them with the question that they're only allowed to review the documents that, that their counsel allows them to see. They're not really looking and reviewing business records. They're just simply given a stack of documents by plaintiff's counsel and said, here's what you're going to look at and here's what you're going to testify to. And ultimately, that's exactly when we hit them with the questions. That's what they said uh, and admitted to, that, that the only documents that they reviewed were the documents given to them by counsel. So this whole uh, business records that we reviewed and we verified and we went through a boarding process and we checked for accuracy and all of this stuff is just absolute complete nonsense. Uh, they are just, they're, they're in parrot fashion, they're, uh, they're coached up, they're told what to say, and they're only allowed to review certain documents. And so we, we really, really hit them hard on that. Uh, point. And I think at the end of the day, uh, Charles, um, this court, in terms of meeting any sort of burden of proof, um, you know, I testified, I said, the, the record is completely void of any evidence that, I mean, no one knows where the notes were. They can't even explain uh, who was in possession with rights to enforce when they were lost. They didn't verify anything. They don't have authority. Oh, and then the other real critical component to this is that there were assignments that were issued in each case, and the assignments did not match the exact name of the plaintiff. And so the assignments only assigned the deeds. They didn't assign the notes, which I pointed out to the court. But I also told the court that you have to be very careful not to make any presumptions that the different names here are one and the same because they play games with the names, and they're often a little bit different, but I've heard no testimony as to why those names are different. I heard no testimony where they say it was a scrivener's error or they had some sort of an excuse for it. 
bottom line is, I told the court, I said, well, you have assignments to an entirely different entity than the plaintiff here today. And at the end of the day, there's no documents to support that the plaintiff exists. There's no pooling and servicing agreement. The only thing that closely resembles is an unexecuted filing with the SEC. But again, plaintiff brought nothing into court to prove their case. So Am I confident that the court's going to, you know, uh, find that the plaintiff met, did not meet any sort of burden or come close? Uh, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. But what a great way and a great tool uh, with this video testifying to, to be able to assist in, in, in the line of questioning. I just thought it was uh, a, a fabulous, uh, fabulous tool. Well, I think it's one of the unintended consequences of, of the COVID crap, as I like to call it, that this this whole move to a kind of online or um, alternative media manipulated access. I mean, uh, I tend to be very old school in some ways. On the other hand, this democratizes access to some extent. Uh, because the fact of the matter is in-person litigating is extraordinarily expensive. It's extraordinarily expensive for our side where the witnesses we bring uh, to support our position, and sometimes they're connected with the borrower in some way, uh, and other forensic specialists such as yourself. I mean, it's expensive to fly you around the country. It's expensive to to put witnesses up in hotels. And there's a lot to be said for the in-person reality. And I think the continuity of all of human history is certainly one aspect that we should not discount in the least. On the other hand, there is this democratizing aspect, and it absolutely does reduce the cost for our side to present a robust case, which can then be presented through either audio or video conferencing. I think WebEx is also an excellent forum for this. Uh, Zoom is showing up even in a lot of government-related conferences, activities. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure exactly how much Zoom has made its way into the, uh, the courtroom arena yet, uh, if some borrowers or listeners uh, have any intel on that, uh, they can correspond with uh, Neil on his blog, and that would be appreciated. Because I think Zoom has lots of issues, and uh, WebEx, I think, is a, a more neutral and possibly stable forum. You were, you were going to say something, Bill, it sounded like. Well, I, I just thought it was interesting, too, because even today um, I was informed from a client in Florida where he has a mediation uh, uh, coming up here shortly, and he asked permission from the parties if uh, if his investigator could attend through video uh, that mediation session, um, and they said, absolutely, he's welcome to attend and assist you uh, as your investigator. Uh, so this will be a, another first where um, I don't have to travel, but I, I can actually sit in and witness what, what's going on in this mediation and what the positions are. And I can actually, it sounds to me, that I can actually speak with the mediator and uh, uh, give some input, which 
uh, again, um, if it's if it's cost effective and we're allowed to do that, um, I think this is uh, some of this COVID stuff might actually have some good consequences in terms of efficiency and being allowed to um, uh, to assist in a, in a more powerful and meaningful way. Oh, I agree with you on that, and I think there's a there's a kind of bicultural aspect to this, and what I mean by that is. It's kind of pre-COVID and post-COVID, the entire world now. Uh, I hope this is not semi-permanent condition. By the way, we won't have time for our our COVID update per se. We will we will address that in the next show. I was just going to say that clearly, those who hung their craft as Bill as 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 I have in the pre-COVID era. We can now take these skills online and into video and into audio conferencing. And I think there are going to be things we'll be able to do uh, for borrowers. So thank you for your time, Bill. And uh, Neil or I will be back next week. And good day in the meantime. Thanks again, Charles. Absolutely. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.